0: So the title of this mission is Preparing Our House to Receive Jesus. Um, I think that it's pretty common knowledge that the season of Advent uh, is a season of, of preparation, season of waiting, um, preparing to receive the King, the Messiah, who's going to eventually come at Christmas. Um, however, it's also probably common knowledge that this is probably one of the busiest times of the year for a lot of people. About the Christmas preparations, There's just everything seems to be hectic, everything just kind of gets into this content period of, of everything hap- is happening right now. There's the, for people in school, there's exams, there's the shopping, there's the family, and Christmas, good and bad, just brings a whole lot of extra things. Um, so here we are today, the second Sunday of Advent. I'm sure last Sunday, on the first Sunday of Advent, we all to Mass, and we all heard homilies about the season of Advent, about waiting, and how this is going to be a new season of preparation. Jesus is coming, and and it's kind of like, it's a new Catholic year, so we're going to make these sort of, you know, resolutions. This Advent, we're going to do these things for Advent. And here we are, one week later. How How was that last week? Was the last week any different than the week before that, or the week before that? Or the week before that. Well, so it, it's, it's, and now it's already December 9th. We have 15 days until Christmas. We have two weeks left until Christmas comes. So things, things fly. And I think the common question is, how can I keep, in the midst of all this busyness, how can I keep God in the center of it? Right? How can I not lose God in the midst of all this stuff that's going on? You know, we're always so busy, we're too busy uh, for God. And I kind of think there's there's some truth to that. There's some truth to the busyness of life. But I think more often than not, it's kind of a trick question. Because usually, we have enough time, we always seem to have enough time for the things that we want to do. Right? We always have enough time to get all the shopping done. We always have enough time to get all the food ready go to all the parties, all, everything gets done more often than not. So we have time for the things that we want. And why is it that usually when, we, when it comes down to these situations, and it's not just Christmas and Advent, this happens, you know, different all the big holidays throughout the year, when things get so busy, why is it that it's always the spiritual that kind of seems to get pushed to the side? Why is it that God is always the one who gets, gets cut? In, in the chopping block. When we have all these things going on. So it, it is, there, is a, there is a sense about being too busy. That's an important element. But I don't, think, I don't think that gets to the heart of it. I think the heart of it comes down to that question of, of what do we really want? What do we desire? Because we always seem, like I said, to have enough time for those things that we really do want to do think that if we, really, if we really understood what God has done, what God did, what God continues to do, if we really saw what happened and to what, what lengths he's done for us, that we couldn't help but desire him all the more. If we really kind of grasped that a little bit deeper, we couldn't help but seek him with everything. We couldn't help but make him the sinner. Because if we saw what he did, if we understood why he did it, we'd see the extent to which he loves us. we see how much he loves us. And love has this weird characteristic in that it it can't help but but beget more love. St. John of the Cross, he's one of my favorite saints, and he has this quote that he says, Where there is no love, put love, and you will draw out love. You know, that feeling like whenever someone shows us something to show that they love you, they give you a compliment, they give you a gift. You feel it. You, you, the love in your heart for that person grows. Wherever you put love, it can't help but draw out more love. And so what God, what God does is that he puts the greatest of all love. He puts divine love within us. And if we, if we recognize that, that can't help but just call us. We can't help but respond to lo- with, with love. And if we saw this, if we saw why he came, we'd better know how to prepare. How to prepare ourselves for his coming. We'd we have that motivation um, because unfortunately, there's no, there's no magic word that I, can, that I can say to help us to put God at the center. There's no secret practice that if we can just do this one little thing, then God will be the center of our life. There's nothing that we can do. We have to desire it. It's all rooted in our desire, what we desire, what we love. That if we we take that seed that was given to all of us in baptism, that seed of God's love that was planted within within us on the day of our baptism, we, we cultivate that, we till the soil, that's our job. To take this dignity and this grace that we've been given and to just till the soil, to let it germinate, To let God work in our life. To let him do what he has been doing and to just recognize the grace that we've been given. It's that simple. So I could sit here and talk about the importance of silence. The importance of taking intentional periods of our day to just block out all the noise and to, to, to give God a space to speak. Which is incredibly important and necessary. I could sit here and talk about about how important it is to pray every day, to maybe finish it's just 10 or 15 minutes, to just tell God the desires that are on our heart and let him speak to that, which is important and absolutely necessary. Could talk about how important it is to be devoted to the Blessed Mother, to pray the rosary, to allow her and her motherly love to lead us to her son in perhaps a way that nobody else can, which is important and absolutely necessary. But when it comes down to it, As important as all those things are, love has to be the center. Love has to be the key because love is that thing that engenders love, that begets love. When we see how much God loves us, what he does for us, we have his own love born into our hearts. St. John, in his first letter, he said that this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us. That's, that's the beginning by recognizing that. And that if God so loved us, it's only because that God has so loved us, that we have that love born in us, to love Him back and to love other people, in that love. So to best prepare ourselves, to open up our door, open up the doors to Christ, prepare our hearts and prepare our homes to receive Jesus, who's coming that, this Christmas to prepare this for this season of advent. And, and for Christmas and beyond, because this whole thing of preparation doesn't stop once December 25th hits. This is the, the whole point of our entire Christian life, is receiving God more and more deeply, always preparing a place for him. That if we, if we want to do that as best we can, we have to dive into why Christmas happened in the first place. To see why God did what he did. To see that love, personally. And to let that love motivate us. To be moved by that love. To see why Jesus came. And why did he come the way that he did? The basic answer to that question is a Greek word. It's called kerygma. What that means, it means, it means preaching. It's kind of like the gospel in a nutshell. It's, it's everything that God has done for us. From the beginning of creation to, the, to, to till now. Everything God has done for us. Everything that's directed towards. And if we hear, it's, it's things that we've heard before, but if we hear that anew, if we hear in our hearts what God has done for each one of us individually, that, that love is enkindled anew. And we're inspired by that love to make the changes that we need to make in our life, to seek God all the more deeply. Because that love has to be the motivating factor. Otherwise, our efforts eventually just kind of fade away. It's the love that keeps us on track. How many New Year's resolutions end by like week two? It's because there's no love motivating that. That love has to be the key. It's got to be for a person. This abstract New Year's resolution that I'm going to you know, exercise just because I want to lose weight has no real love motivating it. There has to be a person that we're doing it for, ultimately for God. And so, to understand this love, to understand the love with which God has acted for us, we go back all the way to the beginning. We go back to Genesis. Now, there's, there's like a thousand things that we could say about, you know, the, this this the gospel. This is what the church has spent 2,000 years preaching. So obviously I can't do it in this short little hour. But I just want to, to pull out maybe a couple things that can help us. And so when we look at, at creation, I think we, when we look at, at somebody, we know people by by their acts. Or if someone does good things, we can say well, that looks like a good person. And I think the act of creation reveals to us a couple things about God. The act of creation: one, <clears throat> God didn't need to create. It wasn't like God was bored one day and said, I think I'm just going to make a universe. God created purely out of love. He loved so much that that love had to, he wasn't content to just be within himself. He, had to, he wanted to love us. He wanted to love all of creation. This whole creation was just a free act of love. God got nothing out of creation. It was a complete and total selfless act of love. That's, wh- that's why creation happened. So it reveals just, the, just a, it's a clear indication that God just loves, totally. Another point that struck me, I heard a priest say it, and it's kind of, it's, 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 almost, it's funny the way it says it in scripture. So God created the heavens and the earth, the sky and the sea and the land and all the things that were in it. And in first in uh, Genesis one chapter sixteen, it says that God made two great lights: the greater light to rule the day, the lesser light to rule the night. And then, almost like it's like a side note, and He made the stars also. Like, oh yeah, I forgot about that. He made the stars. There's a hundred billion stars in our galaxy. There's 100 billion galaxies in the universe. 100 billion times 100 billion is some number that I can't even like begin to fathom. The, the universe is 46 billion light years across. And one light year is 5.88 trillion miles 46 billion times 5.88 trillion miles. It's another, like, these numbers are just so big that you can't fathom them. If you take, let's, so let's look at one star. The biggest star that we know of is called, it's called the big dog. And inside that one star, we can fit seven quadrillion Earths. Now, maybe if we can understand that a little more, if you were going to say, all right, I'm going I'm to count to a 1000000 take you 12 days. It takes 12 days to count to a million. If you're going to count to a billion, it'd take you 31 years. If you're going to count to a trillion, it'd take you 31,000 years. If you're going to count to a quadrillion... It'd take you 31 million years to count to a quadrillion. And there's seven quadrillion Earths in that one star. It's like, think about the immensity of this completely selfless act that God has done. And think about the immensity of that person who, who did all of that. Like that. And now, think about the fact that that God, who did all of these things, did it all for, for you. For you. That your life is in that God's hands. Like, just one person. He would have done all of that for one person. So, I think we can take a lot of comfort in that. We can maybe relax. That if we feel that things aren't going right, if we feel that we're screwing up God's plans, like, we are one speck on a speck on a speck on a speck of, the, of, of, what, of what God has created. Number one, he, and he loves you, he did all that for you, and that we can't even hope to screw up his plans. Creation reveals to us just the the immensity of God and the immensity of his love for us. All of this was for for one person. It shows us that his action, what he does, is is the primary thing. That's something I was struck. All the readings at Mass today had this, this notion of God. He's the primary actor. In the first reading from Baruch... It said, Jerusalem, take off your robe of mourning and misery. That's what what we have. And put on the splendor of glory from God forever. Wrapped in the cloak of justice from God. Bearing on your head the mitre that displays the glory of the eternal name. For God will show all the earth your splendor. And you will be named by God forever. Because God commands that every mountain be made low, that the depths and gorges be filled, and that Israel advances securely to God's glory. This is all things that he's doing. St. Paul, in in the second reading to Philippians, he said that, I'm confident of this, that the one who began the good work in you, he is going to bring it to completion. He will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. St. John the Baptist in the gospel today said, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight his paths. Every valley shall be filled. God's going to fill the valleys. Every mountain and hill shall be made low. He's going to do that. The winding roads shall be made straight. The rough ways shall be made smooth so that in that all flesh can see the salvation of God. It points to just this, the beauty and the immensity of everything God is always doing. That sounds, sounds great and all. Why? What happened? That's not how we feel most of the time. That's not our experience. That's not the experience of the world. That God it doesn't look like God is acting. What, what happened? That brings, us, that brings us to the fall. To the heart. This is why God came. This is why Christmas happens. is because of this, this mystery of the fall. And I think we can, we can get into this way of thinking about the world like kind of like a big Marvel movie. With it's the good God versus the bad God. And we're in the, this struggle of good and evil. That's not actually the case. There's only one God. There is one good God, and that's it. The devil, he's just he's a creature. He's real, it doesn't mean he can't do anything, but he's a creature, ultimately. He knows that if he goes against God, he's going to lose. And so the book of Genesis, we can kind of think of it like, a, like a, the devil's playbook. Like film that they watch in football to see, see the plays over and over again. We, from, in the book of Genesis, we get the devil's film. Because he knows he can't go against God, so he goes against the thing God loves the most. That's us. And what he does is he actually, is, he's, it's not that complicated. He does the same play over and over and over and over again because it works. What the devil is is that he's the father of lies. He's a liar. That's what he does. And he's a smart liar. And so what he does, his, his play is this. He says, God, he's, God is not your father. In fact, he's, he's, act, he's working against you. That he doesn't care about you. You can't, you can't really trust him. He's holding out on you. He doesn't really love you. You have to, find your own, you have to seek your own happiness elsewhere. He's not going to give it to you. Maybe it's, maybe it's a little more subtle. Maybe it's that, not that God's against you, but that he, you're so small. God, he can't, God can't possibly notice all these details of your life. Just go on, live, live your life as if God wasn't there. Because, I mean... We'll just coexist, not caring about each other. And his goal is is to to kill, to steal, to destroy. He's He's motivated by hatred. And his goal is to mock you for all eternity for falling for those deceptions. That's what he wants more than anything. And so we know the story. We know Adam and Eve did just that. And so since, since then, we've kind of been sold into a slavery, to this, this reign of sin and death. And slavery is kind of is a, a powerful, it's exactly what it is. Maybe in a modern day context, and think of it as like human trafficking. We're trapped. And no matter what we do, we can't seem to get ourselves out of it. How many of us have ever done something that we didn't want to do? like today, <laughs> like driving over here. St. <laughs> Paul says, you know, the thing that I don't want to do is what I do. The thing that I want to do is, that, is what I don't do. Over and over and over again, we're reminded of this, this, this slavery that we're in. And like every day we're reminded that we're trapped and that we can't get out. Every day that we're reminded that we're enslaved. And so God responds. God sees man in this situation and he loves man so much that he can't, he cannot leave the situation as it is. He's moved so greatly that he can't, he can't help but act. And he does that in so many ways today, perhaps looking at the incarnation this mystery that we're preparing for, seeing the motivation for why he did it, we can dive more deeply into that. Why did Jesus come the way he did? St. John, in that same first letter, says that the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. That's That's why he comes. Jesus himself said that he talks about a strong man entering the house, entering the strong man's house to plunder his goods. And how can one enter a strong man's house unless you first bind the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. The devil is that strong man. Jesus came to bind him, to plunder the devil's house, to rescue us from that. I think maybe a concrete image that could be helpful is, is this image of D-Day. The, the soldiers who landed on Normandy Beach knew why they were there. They came to fight. They came to liberate a nation that had been enslaved to tyranny. Jesus, when we look at a nativity scene, it's that like kind of the image we get. Because that's what it is. Now, I read, I read a book. I started reading a book this week. It's called The Memory Book. And it, helps you, it gives you these tools for helping you remember things. And one of the tools it talks about is association. So it, lists, it gave me 10 random words. And you associate these words by, think, by pairing them together, just by thinking of some insane image. Because our mind remembers that. So like, I don't have these words written down. But the 10 words that it gave me were airplane, tree. Envelope, um, earring, bucket, sing, basketball, salami, star, nose. I guess you have to take my words, those were the words. But those were actually the words. Ten random words. And you associate them by, like, so airplane to tree. I imagine an airplane whose wings are trees. Tree to envelope, you imagine a tree... For me, it was a tree that had envelopes instead of leaves and so on and so forth. And it connects you from one thing to the other. When you look at a manger scene, I want you to look at the, look at the manger scene and associate that with D-Day. Maybe that's just this image of a baby, you know, in, in um, army gear charging on the beach, running. Something, something absurd. But associating that that, that child... We think of it as it's acute, cute, it's a peaceful, it's, it's a, a, a loving God, a peaceful God who comes to be with us. And all those things are so true. And thank God that we have a merciful, peaceful, loving God. But that God is also a God who comes to fight for us. That what happened on Christmas, it's an invasion. It's an invasion of the kingdom of death by a stronger kingdom. By the kingdom of God. And that God becomes flesh. To liberate us, to liberate his most loved creature. God comes and takes on human nature solely for that purpose that he loves us too much to leave us where we are. Like this idea of God coming down and becoming man, Christianity is the only religion that has that sort of thing. We're unique in that. No other religion has its God coming down to become man. Because I think Christianity has this, this insight of just how much God, the motivation of love that's present in everything God does. And that love can't help, like we can't help but, but be motivated by that love. And it doesn't, we know, we know the story. It doesn't stop with the baby at, on Christmas Day. It goes all the way to the cross. We know just how far Jesus now is willing to go to show his love for us, all the way to his death, to give himself totally out of love for us. It may be easy to look at this crucifix, and it doesn't really look like a victorious symbol. And so you can look, at, look at, at the crucifix in question, is, is Jesus a victim or is he actually coming to fight? Is he the victim or the aggressor? Is he coming to hunt the devil or is he, is he being hunted? A priest used a cool way to talk about, about Jesus in this, with this, in this context of a battle. He says that Jesus here, he's an ambush predator. So when an ambush predator is, is think Venus flytrap. He, he sits there, he lies motionless and still, camouflaged, luring his prey in till he can pounce on it. God allowed himself to be ripped to shreds. That same immense God who did all those acts of creation, he wouldn't be there unless he allowed himself to be there. So he allowed himself to be there and, and, and to show how much he loves us, to make atonement for us, those two things are true, yes, but it was his act of war. Because Satan knows that he can't win, he knows he can't fight God, so Jesus has to kind of, he, he tricks him. And by allowing himself to succumb to death, he's swallowed by death, so that from within, he can... He can Destroyed, and that just when Satan might realize what's happening, it's too late. Because by that act of love, our redemption was was won for us. The victory, the victory has won. So we celebrate every mass, and it's really cool. The Christmas mass, we see all of that because we celebrate this mystery of the incarnation, and and we we celebrate the Eucharistic prayer. The memorial of Jesus' suffering, death, and resurrection. All of it is together in this one beautiful celebration of just how much God loves us. And the battle, yes, it still rages on today. The war is not over. But just like at D-Day, that was the turning point. World War II didn't end on D-Day. But for all intents and purposes, we knew what was going to happen. It's kind of where we're at right now. The war is not over, but we know what's going to happen. It's not a mystery. So how do, we, how do we respond to that? How do we respond to the one who came to rescue us in this way? By giving everything for us. There's two common words that we hear in Advent and want to highlight. Maybe that can help us see how we can respond to that, or at least Better tailor our responses so we can respond more deeply. And that's prepare and repent. So prepare, Advent, the season of preparation. We put a lot of focus on preparing, you know, in our life today. To be a priest, it it takes eight years of preparation to be a priest. We have to we prepare every time we receive a sacrament, there's preparation that's involved. And that's good. Sometimes I think we can maybe overemphasize the prepare. So if someone's going to come, if if you're having someone over for dinner at the house, you're going to prepare. You're going to clean house. You're going to tidy things up, make everything look nice. Maybe that involves taking everything, throwing it in that back bedroom, and closing the door, and your guests just can't go into that room. But everything else looks nice. What if, though, what if, it's a surprise visit. Knock on the door, you know, the priest comes by and says, Hey, I was just in the neighborhood. I wanted to, you know, have some time to chat. Meanwhile, all you can think about is, Oh my God, the house is a wreck. God, I think, often acts like that. The preparation is good, but he's a God of surprises. He comes and catches us off guard. I think about this, the story of the centurion in the Gospels. He comes to Jesus and says, "Lord, my servant's sick. Can you heal him?" And Jesus, he says, "Yes. Let's go. Let's go. Let me go with you to your house right now, and we'll heal him." And I imagine that kind of. He said, "Whoa, Lord, I am not worthy for you to come into my house. Why don't you? We can just. You can just say the word, and he'll be healed." I imagine it kind of took him by surprise. But what happened? They went to his house and healed the servant. I imagine Mary, the Annunciation was an utter surprise to her. She wasn't, she wasn't sitting there waiting for the angel, she couldn't have prepared herself for that question. But she was open to, to the action of God, open to receiving that message of the angel and said, Lord, let it be done to me according to your word. She wasn't, it was a surprise. I did my internship at Annunciata for the last, from June to October. And, and over and over and over again, it wasn't the things that I was prepared for where I saw God acting most profoundly. It was the things where I was completely blindsided. I went to Vanderbilt to, um, to talk about the March for Life, to promote the March for Life pilgrimage to get kids excited to go. And it was while I was there that a student who had been battling cancer, they found out he had passed away. And so we, we changed gears and we spent that day just kind of being with people kind of to walk through that, that, that traumatic experience. And that was without a doubt like God most powerfully acted in a lot of lives that day. Not because we had prepared for it, not because we were ready for it, but just because he took us off our feet and and we we were open to whatever he was willing to do. Jesus doesn't need a lot of preparation. We see that in the way he came. He came surrounded by a bunch of farm animals. He came in a stable on a cold night. He was born in, in a feeding trough. Like, he doesn't need us to prepare a palace for him. There's no standard that we have to work our way up towards, and then we say, All right, that's good enough. I'm going to come into your life now. All he needs is an open door and an open heart. That's it. He doesn't need a lot. He just needs that openness, that awareness to recognize that God is always acting with perhaps just that little bit of silence. A little bit of, of, of reflection on your day, we can see how God was acting. A preparation, not of reaching a level, but of of, of opening ourselves to be aware, to see God acting. Another word is repent. I think that repent can often kind of have this negative: like, repent, stop sinning, stop doing what you're doing, turn around, um, turn from your sin, change your life. Which is true. Perhaps maybe we can think of it as God saying to us, you're settling when you don't have to. I have so much more that I want to give you. Why, why are you settling? Look at all of this I have to give you. C.S. Lewis talks about the example, he used the example of two kids who are playing in a mud puddle. And their parents are trying to convince them to leave the mud puddle because they want to take them to a vacation to the beach. They're going to go drive to the beach, but the kids are just, they, just, they don't want to leave the mud puddle. Because they're focused on that, so focused on that one thing, they don't see the great joy that their parents have in store for them at, at the beach. It's kind of what we, we tend to stay at the mud puddle, instead of, of seeing the beach that God wants to show to us. It's a change, it's a change in the way that we think. A lot of times we, we, have, we, have a, we think wrongly. Of a cha- repent just means like a change in the way we see the world. Imbued by that openness that allows us to see what God desires, to see God acting in our life. And by allowing the love to permeate us just a little more deeply, our vision can change. For, for the king, that king is going to come now. He comes now, Today. We're going to have this moment of adoration. What do we want to say to him? How are we going to respond to everything that he's done for us? Jesus' encounter with the blind man, Bartimaeus, asks him a fantastic question. What do you want me to do for you? What do you desire from me? That's a question that we we, we need to ask God. We need to hear God ask us every day. What do you desire for me? What do you want me to do for you? Let that love that he's shown us engender love within us. How are we going to respond to when God asks us that question tonight? What do you want me to do for you?